So every time you make a code change, you'd have to make it across each language code base. I mean, it's just crazy to even think about that. And I'm just like, okay, that's the hill you want to die on is not to internationalize your code. Um, but I told them it's nuts. Well, hello, everyone. This is Andre, and this is the Localization Podcast, episode number 57. And this will actually be the last episode for this year. So, Merry Christmas and see you in the new year. But anyway, let's get back to this episode, which will be a special one because I got to talk to my ex-colleague, Bert Stauber, that you might have already seen in some of other content that we created in the past years. And of course, we are going to talk about that one little word that I have always trouble pronouncing, and that is internationalization, which is also about sort of like a niche focus of something that he really enjoys. So of course, in this episode number 57, you're going to learn what actually is internationalization? How is it related to localization? When should companies start thinking about it? And how do we, how, how should we as an industry educate developers about internationalization? Final highlight for this first part is the question whether smaller LSPs should have someone technical in their team, if possible, and what are the benefits of that? Okay, I think that's a lot of highlights for this episode. So I hope you're excited for the new episode with Beth. So let's get right into the interview now. Do you remember the first time you fell in love with internationalization? I don't think it was a specific moment. Um, I came into the industry in uh, language QA. And um, as I was testing, I started to see some of those challenges. And um, one of the really unusual ones was um, keyboard sharing. When um, when you have a shared workspace, you know, where you can share like a whiteboard or something, which was part of the video conferencing software that we were testing. Um, if the person on the other side has a keyboard with a Japanese IME turned on, for example, input method editor. Um, how does that translate to the other side? How is the shared um, whiteboard going to represent you know, the typing? It has to be aware of the IME being on. And there was all kinds of issues around that. That's a pretty advanced internationalization challenge. And that's very fascinating to me that um, how the developers worked on that and tried to figure that out. Those are very complex problems. So I was fascinated by those kind of things that came up during the testing. Um, and um, video conferencing particularly has some really interesting stuff because you have different connection speeds and, you know, in different geographies, some, some geographies, they just have lower speeds and you have to have a good experience. You know, that's internationalization too, right? To, to allow different physical locations to have the same experience in a shared environment, like a video call. Some people maybe didn't think, don't think about as internationalization, but it is too. Um, so a lot of issues around that beyond the localization. I just thought it was fascinating how, um, you know, 
you have to prepare the software for translation uh, to, to show uh, um, fonts, for example, for different languages when you translate the interface into Japanese. We did Japanese and German in this first product. And um, so it's a fascination with those kind of problems and seeing how the developer solved them. At the time, I didn't know anything, right? And so, so it wasn't this one moment I fell in love with it, and um, but it, I always liked those challenges and kept adding to my to my knowledge about those things with every product I worked on. Um, so I, I think that's kind of how it happened. Did that initial fascination sort of let you to go to a different, let's say, role than testing? Yes, um, I testing was a little bit repetitive to me. Um, because you basically, you know, you have a, a product build, a preliminary build put in front of you of a piece of software, and then you just, you know, run through your cycles and report bugs, and then you verify them when they're fixed. Um, it gets a little bit repetitive. Um, and so I was like, well, why can I be involved in the fixing? The fixing of issues is a lot more interesting to me. Um, and so I started to just kind of help out with that kind of stuff. In my role, I got more into that. It's like, who is fixing this stuff? And you know, they, I realized they didn't really have a, an engineer who would do that. And so I just kind of pushed myself into that role and eventually switched over entirely to the engineering. Mm -hmm. I guess for a lot of people, when you talk about working as a localization engineer, it's not necessarily related to internationalization. Were you able to, I don't know, get yourself into internationalization when you started working as an engineer? Or was it still what we normally know from the, let's say, the vendor side that engineers typically do? I was able to get myself into it because I saw that as a local engineer who does pre-processing and bug fixing, post-processing, um, you interface with the QA team, right? You get to see the defects that they submitted. And I noticed that, um, in, at least in this specific group I was in, the QA lead or the testers didn't really know which bugs were just things you could fix linguistically and which bugs were maybe required a developer to fix an underlying internationalization issue. So I felt that the LE needs to have that knowledge so they can you know, if they go through the defects, if they get the raw set of defects from that are not scrubbed by anybody with that knowledge already, you get a mix of things and you need to know and you need to know quickly what can I fix, right? And then add the internationalization issue to the developer queue, and you want to be able to also add some information to it. So you want to be able to troubleshoot maybe some things, figure out, okay, what is really the underlying issue here? Because the developers Enjoy, uh, they like that when you give them a little bit of of that uh, troubleshooting info. It's easier for them to fix a bug because they're not internationalization experts either. If they're not part of the localization team, if they're just software developers out there. So I think I realized this, this is my role. I can add value here by figuring that out, adding appropriate information and routing things to the developer or to a to a linguist or fix it myself, right? So and if you're the better you get at that when you talk in large volumes of defects, you can move really fast, right? And 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 get through hundreds of defects. And as you get more experience within seconds, you immediately know, okay, this is internationalization. This is something I can fix. This should go to linguist. And that, you know, that's where you become more valuable, I think, as a as an LA if you have that knowledge. Mm-hmm. 
Well, one thing that I think is interesting is that initially you said that when you were working as a tester, you got fascinated by what you could be doing more, and that's what led you to engineering. Uh, and now you talked about developers. Did you ever think about actually going even further, say upstream, becoming a developer? Or why does the role of an engineer who let's say specializes or has so much interest in internationalization, why is that, let's say, your final station? Um, it's a pretty simple answer. I don't like coding. <laughs> I've tried it. I've done a little bit of coding. I've never formally learned it, but I did some coding in the way early times, and I just didn't really enjoy it. It's very. I found it very tedious. I think it's fun to create that way, but I found the process very tedious. And I think so somehow my mind and coding didn't really align. Um, could I have become a coder? Probably. But I mean, I, I think I have to, you know, I have the intelligence if I had applied myself, but it just didn't appeal to me. All right. So thinking about internationalization, maybe for those who don't know what we're talking about, what is your definition? You mentioned something that I would never think about, you know, like the different internet speed that need to be solved, for example, for a conferencing software. I never thought that something like that would be a criteria for internationalization. So what do you understand with internationalization and why is it important? Well, I think it's any modification to a product that allows the product to be used worldwide, geographically, by any user speaking any language, ideally, um, in best case, right? Um, so it should function worldwide in as many environments as possible by as many people as possible. That's to me, is the very broad, very broad strokes. Now for each product, that's of course, is a different challenge. You can have a product box of a product and you can internationalize the box by having multilingual instructions on it, right? Or providing information about um, you know, does it contain a power cords for different countries or a country-specific power cord? That's internationalization too. Um, so there are many, there's just a, an odd example that people may not think about. It's not just software. Um, it, it can be in other areas. So hardware too, right? If you ship um, a, a washing machine to one country or the other, you don't have to cut the correct plug with it. It's internationalization too. Uh, manuals, providing manuals in different languages, but then for software, of course, that's my specialty. I'm not specializing in washing machines. <laughs> Too bad. Um, but is there is there a scenario where we who work in the localization, especially if you're working on the vendor side, can somehow impact something about, let's say, what power cord should be used? Or is this the internationalization that has to be done by the, let's say, the manufacturer or the, or the client? Yeah, I mean, if we were in some way involved in that process, of course, having that knowledge, you know, I would certainly point it out if I see something. Um, I have um, worked with product packaging occasionally, a localization of product packaging, and you know, may have pointed out some some things there. Um, um, not can't come up with a specific example, but um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. But. Right. Okay. So localization, speaking of localization, how do those two terms relate to each other? You mentioned the, the packaging. Okay. So we, I guess, 
obviously understand that you translate what it, whatever is on the box, um, but how do internationalization and localization relate to each other? It, I think people, if you ask different people, you get slightly different answers. Um, what I see a lot, localization is the adaptation to a specific region or country, right? Whereas the internationalization is to get it ready so it can be adapted. So it's kind of a two, the, 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 the one can't happen without the other. You can't localize without internationalization, but you can internationalize without localization. One has to come first. If you can't translate a user interface, then you can't make a German app, right? If everything is hard-coded and it's basically basically impossible to translate the strings, then you can't localize. Um, if if you have address formats, for example, in an ordering system, if the system is not internationalized to handle different address formats being through um, uh, CLDR, I believe it's called, which I haven't used actively, sadly, um, then you, if you don't make it ready for that, then you can't adapt, right? The address formats, you can't support different address formats if the, if the system is not ready to do it. So yeah, I think it's, it's a really two things that have to happen in sequence. And then localization itself, you know, can be translation, but also can be adaptation of the content. Could be marketing adaptation, right? Um, like stuff like address formats, um, um, picking, picking the like picking a UI font that's appealing to, for example, for Thai, that's localization. But making the software able to, where you can choose a, a font and not just using some default font, that's internationalization to me. I lost my thought right now. Wait, what did I want to ask? Oh, yes. The example that you gave, that if strings are hard-coded, I think that's like one of the most common examples that people give, at least in my experience, when they talk about internationalization. Now, you said that you can do localization. Is it really that it's impossible or it's no, just it's not harder impossible. to do it's it? it's not impossible. You'd have to duplicate the code for each language. Right, and then translate the strings inside the code, which there may not be a parser to proper to automatically parse that, so you'd have to do it manually. And then you have multiple sets of the same code, so every time you make a code change, you'd have to make it across all the each language code base. I mean, it's just crazy to even think about that. But yet, I've worked on projects where that was done. I worked on projects where that was done, and I couldn't get the dev team to change their ways. It has happened, and I'm just like, okay. That's the hill you want to die on is not to internationalize your code. Um, but I told them it's nuts. Um, maybe not in those words, but um, but they just like, we don't have the resources to do it. But then how many resources do you need to manually keep all that up to date? So it, it, it doesn't make sense. So since you failed in that situation to convince someone, why do you think some companies or some clients are not willing to invest in internationalization and maybe then we can talk about like what is that investment actually look like that's really the million dollar question and i literally mean million dollar questions because that's the cost right of for a larger company with larger products the cost is in the millions i believe if you don't internationalize i think education is the first part and you try that and you you know it depends if you're working for a localization provider and you work for a large company, 
first, you don't have the same amount of leverage. If you're a co- an employee of that big company, you're both employees, like the developer is and I am, then maybe I have a little more leverage. I have easier paths to escalate it. If you're working for a, a localization provider, you may not have that leverage. They may not take you as seriously because you're you're not from an outside company. It's like, why would I listen to that guy, right? Um, so education is the first part. Sometimes uh, development teams are short-staffed. So the, um, especially if their internationalization is so behind that the effort would be huge. They've already have a huge code base and, and um, you know, very well-established product. That, that We've run into that a lot where we get pulled into a product that was released for years um, in English only in most cases. And um, we looked at the internationalization and it was just impossible or it would have been a really huge effort. Then they might have not have the staffing to do it or the release cycles are so, you know, tight that there's just no time in between. Um, but we've also had cases um, where they said, okay, this is the right thing to do, but we, it may take us a couple of releases to actually fully internationalize. And then uh, they would either wait on localization or they would do brute force localization for a little while and then go to you know proper localization. So I've seen all of that um, in, my, in my career. But yeah, I think, uh, I think those are some of the reasons. But without dedication, it's not going to happen because software developers simply are not going to know what internationalization is unless they work in the industry or have worked on a project where that was a big deal. But yeah, I wish it was on the roadmap for every project, right? Shipping their requirements should be uh, enforced by uh, development team management, um, just like any other requirements for a piece of software. From what you were saying, to me, it looks like if, let's say, a big company decides to do internationalization and they're behind, there is a huge investment. Is there something that they could do partially? Or is it like, is it really like you either do it or do it well, or you don't do it at all? Can you do like some smaller steps? Yeah, I think you can do it partially. Um, if you know, if if you had to prioritize certain things. So, for example, if you say, "Well, we need to translate the user interface," but um, we may have to hold off on some of the other issues. I think what you do is you do a full internationalization assessment of the product. So, I identify all the issues: hard coded strings, right? Address formats, number formats, state formats. Uh, uh, UI fonts, um, um, you know, many other things, data input, output, uh, things like that. So everything use Unicode in the background, things like that. So uh, you identify everything that you can, and then you you figure out what would be the effort with the development team. You figure out what would be the effort for each item to get it to get it supported, and and then you prioritize based on that. What would have the biggest user impact? Like if you can hard coded strings, you need to translate into German. You have to move the strings to a resource file of some sort. You have to separate them from the code. That's a must do. So that is top, right? And then the other things you'd have to just prioritize. What's the user impact? Um, and um, you know, can you live with some of the things if the effort is too big? And some of them you might see that they're really small things. You know, We call low-hanging fruit, easy to fix. Just fix them. You know, don't even debate it. So that the stuff that's like 15 minutes to code, you just fix. And then the, the things that take 100 hours, um, you know, then you have to prioritize. But you also, there might be some tool to help you. I know there's some tools to extract strings from from code, um, either do it automatically or at least flag everything. And um, so there's some help there in, in some cases too. 
Um, but yeah, that's how I would approach it. Do a full assessment and then prioritize. Mm-hmm. When do you think a company should start thinking about internationalization? Let's say that we're focusing on new companies like startups. Today. <laughs> um, so as soon yesterday. as possible, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yesterday is not going to help you, but yes, um, I think as you as you can see, like once you have the idea for a product, I think it should come into play right away before you put any effort into it. If, if it's an idea and you actually have a high probability of putting the idea into a product, turning it into a product, at that point, you would like to have somebody on the team who at least understands basic aspects of internationalization. Because it, you know, I see, I review wireframes sometimes of products. They're not, you know, fully fledged out. They just show approximately what kind of layout they want, how the screens are supposed to look. That's where you already want to have a review of things. And then you want to um, train the developers in best practices for internationalization. So they don't start writing code and already creating problems. Um, so you do want to do some training on the developers before they write the first line of code. So it's, I think it's those three things uh, mainly that I can think of. So training the developers, reviewing anything visual early, um, and also looking at market requirements. Are there any specific market requirements? Is, you know, is the product going to have to look differently besides language and fonts and, and, and data formats? Those are kind of a given. But is there other, other things where you need the adjustment for, you know, if you use currencies or, um, like I said, address formats, I think was another one. That a little maybe a little more out there that people don't think about right away. Um, so I think that you know, in the, including even maybe marketing people have marketing people sit down with an internationalization person, go over some of that and see if there's some stuff there that they didn't think about. Mm-hmm. Well, first thing that stood out for me was the wireframes that you actually looked at wireframes. What is it that you look at when it comes to wireframes? Yeah, it's kind of from a UX point of view, right? Um, you see the way elements are arranged that won't, like, for example, if you have a, a label and then you have a text box, you would want the label to be above the text box. So there's room for the text to expand and then the, the box below instead of the label being to the left of the text box. And then you have to worry about word wrapping and, um, and you know, everything becomes more difficult. You also want to think about if if they're going to be bidirectional languages, maybe how, you know, that maybe not quite into wireframes, but how it's going to flip and all that. That's a whole separate issue that we may touch on. Um, but yeah, I think that's the kind of stuff I look 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 out for. What would happen if the text expands or contracts? Is it going to mess with that layout? And or how flexible is it going to be? Buttons and stuff. If you cram too many buttons next to each other, they have no room to expand easily. Um, things like that are narrow columns of with text in it. Um, those kinds of issues. Maybe let's have a debate about this thing because I'm not sure if I agree with you, but or maybe maybe I'll try to explain it to you from the perspective of a really bootstrap startup. Like if you're if you're bootstrapping a company, and let's say you have an idea for an app, maybe if you're confident, or maybe if you have VC money or some money in the bank, then maybe yes, you can think about okay. We are. We have the best team in the world. We have a great idea. We're going to build this, and you know, two three years from now on, maybe our product will be everywhere in the world. But then there are a lot of startups that probably don't have this extra cash sitting in the back to afford someone like internationalization consultant. They don't have time to train their developers. They just want to get their 
you know, MVP or the first version of their app out just to first try and see if what they assumed about the customers in the market actually sticks. And maybe once they get some initial traction, maybe that's when, at least to me, it would make more sense to start thinking about, you know, the taking over the whole world with your app. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, especially if it's a fairly, if it's a small product, you know, it's not a huge user interface and a lot of user interaction. Of course, it's not going to be that hard to internationalize later. But if you're thinking some big enterprise solution, right? If you're like, oh, I'm going to create something like Salesforce, just better, you know, um, I think it'd be foolish not to to think about it up front. Um, And, you know, when it comes to, like you said, you know, having the money to hire somebody. I mean, if it's a small application, give me two hours of my time. You know, pay me, pay me three hundred bucks an hour for two hours, and I'll, I'll do it for you. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not. It actually, you'd be surprised with a smaller product how quickly you can identify probably the top ten issues. It doesn't take that much time if somebody's experienced. So it's still being money well spent, even with a small, small amount of funding. But yeah, I see. I mean, you know, there's a there's a place um, um, and a time for depending on what you're what you're developing, of course. So you're not. I'm not totally disagreeing with you, but um, I think I think it's a it's you have to you should you should at least think about it, right? Is it worth my time? Is it going to be harder later? But again, the the people who are creating those products are not going to have that knowledge. So uh, I just want to save people from having the big wake up call later. So why why is it why why do you think that the people and we're talking about the developers they don't know anything about this? Do you think that internationalization is still somewhat neglected thing that should be taught in all the boot camps and all the courses? Yeah, of course it should be. Yeah, it, and it's not. I don't think it is. I mean, I'm you know I'm sure there's some examples out there. I think maybe, maybe an instructor or a creator of content um, you know is aware of those things and actually throws in some mentions of that, but. Honestly, I don't see it very often, and I'd love to be proven wrong by somebody. Um, but I, I, most software engineers just don't know. It's just, I mean, I've interfaced with hundreds and hundreds of software engineers in, in my in my career, and uh, they even the ones that we've worked with for a while and we've pointed stuff out, they still keep forgetting, and you have to keep reminding them. So people who've never been exposed to it, they just don't know. So, do you think? Like who should be responsible for changing the, I don't know, the education of developers? Should it be the education system or anybody who's training developers? Or should it be us people from the localization? Good question. I mean, you know, in old times, <laughs> I think people became software developers through, yeah, they would go to university and study computer science. So of course, I think there's that's one place where I'd love to see it. I think it should be mandatory that that's part of the curriculum. Um, so that's so that's the education system. And nowadays it's different, right? You can go on YouTube and learn how to code. Uh, there's so many good resources out there. So it would be on the individual creator of content to have that awareness and weave it into their into their content, which is um, probably just as challenging to achieve because they're thousands of content creators out there um uh, books i guess there are probably books you can learn it from a book too uh, kind of old style but um i'm sure there are good books out there again 
it would have to be part of the content. So it's everybody who creates content would have to, if they don't put it in there, the audience is not going to know. But I assume that from your experience and also from my experience, it usually actually comes down to people from, let's say, our industry, right? You have to do the education once the company sort of realizes that, okay, localization, I don't know, costs us too much or the people from the localization are complaining too much. What should we do about it? And then they are like, oh, we should maybe do something about the way we write the software. So do you think it's like a balance or w- w- what role do you think that the LSPs or people in localization should play in the education of developers? I think they should play a huge role because they're the ones who know the most about it. Um, and it just, you have to be given the opportunity, right? Um, I mean, I uh, I was uh, with a large company, not an LSP for a long time, doing work for Intel. And I did definitely have more leverage when I was an employee. Like I mentioned before, you're just taken more seriously. And uh, we had very long term relationships with some of the product teams. We have products that we worked on for 20 years. And, you know, that gets fun because people really start, you keep pointing out those issues and they are starting to learn, especially if you have little turnover on the development team side. So that's the other thing. I think you see more contracted out software development these days. So companies will hire software developers to help with some things. And then, of course, they don't have control over that level of knowledge that that people have, there's more turnover, so it gets more difficult. So yeah, I think it's up to the LSPs and it's an ongoing thing. I mean, you're always going to have to continue doing that. Would it be great if somebody said, hey, I'm going to contact universities that teach computer science and I'm going to ask about that. And I'm going to even, somebody could offer that as a service, right? They could say, would you pay me to teach your your software, you know, your your um, professors or whoever is teaching the courses to to teach some of that? I mean, that'd be fantastic. It's probably not going to be me. I'm, 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 I'm too late in my career. I don't want <laughs> to take, my question. Why, I don't want to take that you? on. I don't want to take that on. It would be fantastic. I think it's a pretty big thing considering that may, so how many, uh, you know, uh, institutions, learning institutions are out there that teach that. Um, so I, I think it would be a very, very huge undertaking. It's, it's as big as an undertaking as another interest of mine, which is personal finance, which is also not taught in schools. And there's, and there I see it. It's just actually interesting to, to draw that parallel for a second. There, I know a lot of people in the personal finance community that are making that effort. They are working with schools to bring that to people, young people, either in high school or college, to really learn about personal finance because most people know very little about it. They don't know how to manage money, right? And I see a lot of efforts there. I don't see it with this uh, as much, except for you know the couple of schools that are actually have a localization curriculum. Um, there it's taught, right? Um, um, but on the software development side, I, I think I would love to see some people take that on. You could probably create a company around that. That just does that kind of education. It's a hard sell because you have to show people that they actually need it, right? You have to prove that. And that's always been, I think, the hardest to actually really have people understand your audience that this matters and you need to know this um, to convince them that that's been very difficult. So why is it not going to be you? I I already have a job, and I'm starting a new <laughs> okay. jo- I'm starting a new job tomorrow, which is actually interestingly I'm, I'm happy to share that it's a it's a senior globalization lead role for Nike, and um, that is exactly that role where 
you have a this one person who literally the the function is just globalization. Um, so it's going to be working with all the different parties involved that create the products to make sure awareness of of internationalization is here. You know the right methods are used. Um, things are addressed in in a in a timely manner. Working with QA teams, working with potentially marketing people, developers, um, uh, program managers, project managers, everybody in localization to just kind of be that one person who who all that stuff goes through and gets assessed and then communicated and people get educated. So um, so I'm already doing that, but just within you know it's enough doing that for one company. Um, I don't know if I can do it for the whole world. But yeah, it's it's actually really awesome. I think it's a it's an awesome thing to do, but you have to find a place and you know, you also most people have to earn some money. So it has to be for most people it would have to be some some kind of paid opportunity as well. So and that's another thing that might be difficult, right? Educating universities about it is one thing, but um how do you how do you monetize that? Do you think someone who is educating the developers about internationalization should ideally be a developer themselves? I don't think they have to be. Um, it's helpful in some cases. So I've had some cases where, um, so I I can read a little bit of code and look at something and maybe see some issues. Um, depends a little bit on language. You can also look up stuff. You can always find, you know, People run into problems. You can find some discussion topics. Um, it's helpful, certainly, if you if it's easier for you to troubleshoot something. You can be more helpful to the developer because you can already look at the problem and say, "I think your problem is right here." You know, I have limited ability to do that. But um, what I do is because I usually don't get that deep. Is to just identify the problem and say, "This is what it should look like." But you'll have to maybe look at your framework that you're using. And you know how you exactly solve that on a code level, I may not be able to give it an answer. Um, but I haven't had a lot of issues where people say, "Well, I understand what you're telling me, but I don't know how to fix it." That's been pretty rare. And you know, we'll go out there and do some some investigation. We usually figure it out. Um, so, so yeah, I can give them a, kind of a, the concept of how it should be fixed and then how they exactly implement it in the code. I can't really tell them in that. Where is where it would be helpful to be able to code because then you could be more specific with your solutions. But maybe it's better if the developer has to look into that a little bit. Maybe they learn more if they have to go a little deeper. You know, so if if you tell somebody a solution, you may not it may not be the exact same learning than if they have to spend a little bit of time trying to find the the solution. So pros and cons, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I think I meant it mostly from the perspective of. You know, like developers, I guess, like to hang out with developers, you know. So if somebody from the localization comes to them, they're like, ah, who is this guy? Like, Yeah, it can happen. Yeah, you may not be taken so it seriously. Find, like, a common yeah. ground. Yeah, no, I think it would help, definitely, in that regard. So it's certainly not a bad thing. Um, um, I know a few people who were in our team at Intel were, who are developers, and they had some advantages in that regard because they could come up with the actual solution. Uh, or just go a little deeper on some stuff. So certainly not going to harm uh, harm you to to have that knowledge. But I don't want people to think I if I'm not a if I don't write code I can't do internationalization. That's I think that'd be foolish. So I know maybe we haven't said it in this 
interview explicitly, maybe we mentioned it in previous content that we did together, is you already mentioned that you work for Intel directly for the biggest chunk of your career. Yeah, and then 20 you years. Yeah. Moved to the vendor side, right. but still working for Intel yes. as the client. Yes. And you touched on this before, that the people from the vendor side have it more difficult to affect what is happening on the dev side. But since you had those relationships personally, did you feel like something changed once you moved to the vendor side or was it still more or less the same? Both. Um, it, I still had that leverage with the groups that I've kept working with. So there were some teams that um, um, I worked with for, you know, at, when I was an Intel employee for 10 plus years. Um, and then when I, so what, just for context for people that Intel decided to outsource um, all the localization. So they took basically the internal localization team and basically engaged the vendor to provide the, the services. And then so unfortunately, a, a lot of us, you know, didn't keep our jobs at Intel. Um, and some of us chose to move to that other provider to to continue working for Intel. And that was actually maybe one of my motivations that I like my customers. I like the work and I can continue to support them. I'm going to add more value for that vendor because I already know all this stuff, right? I already know Intel. If that company had to provide all new resources that are not Intel trained and knowledgeable, they would have had a more difficult time to provide that service. So um, they tried to 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 hire some of us so that they can get that knowledge in house and then provide the service to Intel. And um, I so it did help with my established customers to continue working with them because they took me just as seriously. They know they know that I know and that I'm helpful and they come to me with the same questions. So there was no difference there. A little more difficult with um, with new customers, new products that came to us. Um, you have to establish that. But you know, if you speak to somebody intelligently, you show them some of the issues, you show them how to solve them, you show them that it's not impossible and how it improves the product, most reasonable people will see the value you're bringing. So it's just a little more work to establish that. And you won't get that trust from everybody. From some people, you won't get them, get it. But it's always worth trying because it's so much more fun to work with a team when you establish that um, that relationship, right? Instead of having this separation of localizations over here, the project manager talks to the to the product team, and that's the only connection. You have no technical connection. It's not it's not a good way to work. So I always I always thrive to create those connections, and that's really to me is where the fun is working with customers directly. You just mentioned the technical connection. I think that is an interesting point because a lot of the people that I work with, you know, who who are trained to be project managers, in those setups, it's usually just a project manager that pretty much handles everything. Like a lot of the smaller LSPs, they don't have any localization engineer, uh, not yet someone who is specialized in internationalization. Do you think it's important? even for the smaller LSPs to have someone more technical in their team, assuming that their clients are actually doing something like software or like apps? Or do you think that maybe the PM should be somewhat like a jack of all trades and also know stuff about um, technicalities and internationalization? You know, it's hard to 
cover all those roles fully one person that's really difficult there are some people who can do it um you know i i would claim i can probably project manage a project uh, reasonably well maybe not you know not not at the same level as somebody really experienced it maybe not a really super crazy big project but i've had so much exposure to it you know i could also be a qle but so i could do all the roles but it'd be very overwhelming and i think there's the other part is that you want to have a team because you don't always have the same opinions and same angles on things. So if if all the thinking about a project comes from one person and then gets told to a customer, you're going to miss some stuff. Having a team of three roles, let's say a QA lead and a LE and the PM, I think you just you just provide better service, even if the PM is the only point of contact. But I, to me, from a comp, com, like I think you're you're a better LSP if you can provide those direct technical. Um, you know, expertise directly to the to the to the to the to the audience because the PM would be speaking to somebody on the other side that's also some kind of program manager or project manager, and then the developer would get another second hand, you know, the information second hand. So it goes through multiple people to the developer. To me, that's just that's just not productive. Um, developers speak a different language. I think you engineers speak a different language. You want them to talk directly. So to me, that's a value add when you can provide an engineer that has the confidence and knowledge to directly talk to developers. Um, that's probably it's probably my biggest pet peeve that um, you know engineers who are. You know, uh, I know engineers are often introverted and they like to quietly work on their stuff, but to have an engineer that can that can have these conversations is confident in speaking about it with people that they don't necessarily know is a huge plus to have for a company. If you're a localization provider, hire some engineers that are good communica- communicators. It's really going to pay off. Yeah, I remember you were highlighting communication as the most important skill that you look for when you hire someone. Is, is this one of the reasons? Yes, it is. That doesn't mean, you know, you can't just focus on that, of course. And um, I... It, hiring is very difficult. That's a whole different topic. I don't know if you have questions about it later, but it's it's a it's a big topic, and it's 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 very difficult to to establish how well somebody's going to do during an interview process. I, I found that out. Um, it it's honestly not. I I don't mind doing it, but it's not my favorite thing because I I'm, I don't feel like I'm the best at it. Um. But yeah, whole that's a whole probably multiple questions in there. I don't know if you're going to touch on it, but I, I know we touched on it in a different podcast. Yes, but one thing that I wanted to ask you when you mentioned about the new customers, where you don't have those established connections, maybe even for the people who are let's say more introverted that are not so good with communication and building those relationships, how should how does it actually start? Let's say we have a new customer. Is the first interaction okay? Let's say let's say the first interaction is maybe with someone from sales or you know, account managers, but then when it comes to the actual production, like how are we going to help that client localize their stuff? Is it more common to have the PMs have the first contact with the client, or is it the LEs? It depends a little bit, but I, I encourage my team. To if it's something really small, right? So if the customer sends you a word document, have a maybe have an idea, a quick look at it. Is there something weird going on? Um, and then you know that might be it. Uh, but if it's anything bigger, I like to have a to have a first call with an engineer, and I encourage it because you you get that you know that first shot at it to put in your little 
um, thoughts about internationalization into the customer's mind. Um, it's the first shot that um, really matters. And so I think if you can, for a lar- if something that looks like a larger project, we have often done it. Uh, it's, a, it's a program manager, a project manager, and an LE. Um, in few cases, if they know if they know if they need heavy QA, they might even invite a QA lead. Um, you know, especially if it's a fairly high chance that this is going to happen. That we know they they're going to need it. It's going to probably going to happen. It's not necessarily like this. Oh, we just want to get an idea what the ballpark cost is. So, if an engineer in there, you get to because you get to ask them some questions and you get to already maybe see some potential issues and you throw that right in there, saying, "Hey, there's some stuff you have to think about here, and we can help you with that." Um, we're going to bake it into our estimate. It's really going to help you down the road because it's going to save you time with this and this and this. It's actually going to save you money, right? You want to throw that in there. Can a PM do that? Pro- possibly. Some PMs can do that. But, you know, PMs are often happy to have that other person in there that, because it takes the pressure off them to, to catch all those things. So the PM can focus on the PM part of the conversation. And then uh, the engineer can add their piece to it. Uh, um, I, I love working like that. First, I love working with PMs. Um, and I think those first opportunities are just so valuable and so critical. Um, uh, you know, if you can't do that because it's just this first contact thing, maybe it has to happen quickly, there's no LE available, then you might say, okay, we the PM could maybe say, hey, we'd love to um, get into a few of the technical things. Um, if you want to do another session, a short session and have the, uh, an engineer there, it would really be helpful and it would benefit you and it might actually help you reduce your cost. You know, you definitely always want to sell it, right? Internationalization, even if you don't have a technical person in that first call. But, okay, but that, that's maybe my question about that. Like, do you consider yourself to be a sales person or did you pick up some sales skills over the time? Or do you think it's really just the fact that you are so into it that you can explain it with your enthusiasm that the clients just get it? I can sell a little bit. I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't really like selling. I don't want, I don't want that to be my job, to be in, in pre-sales. Um, I had a, an opportunity for, I was approached for a pre-sales position for a company and uh, I I like the aspects of it, but I didn't like necessarily the pre-sales part because I don't want to do that as my main thing. But yeah, you are actually, you are selling, you're selling a service. Internationalization is a service and you're selling it. Um, you know, it could provide us with at least upfront extra hours, right? That, that we can charge the customer, but then they will recover at the end, hopefully multiple times um, with, you know, reduced QA and a better product um, and reduced hours on their development team too. So yeah, it is, there's a little bit of sales in there. Um, and yes, I do get very excited about it. Um, and But that takes us back again to hiring an engineer who can communicate well, right? If you invite an engineer into a meeting and they don't dare to say anything and ask any questions, you're not <laughs> getting any of the benefits. So they have to be comfortable. And I think that is a, you know, that shows a certain amount of, it's not just the person's personality. It's also a certain amount of seniority on the engineer side. You don't want to put a junior LE in that position, probably, unless they're exceptional at it. But then maybe they're not junior anymore. <laughs> um, so yeah, you want to have a person that A, can communicate and is really just comfortable to analyze things on the fly. Um, and I think that's an underappreciated quality, honestly, of an internationalization engineer or localization engineer to be able to just look at a situation with relatively little information and immediately start to pinpoint some stuff. You know, that's... That, 
that's incredibly valuable. You know, that's like somebody inspecting your house and immediately seeing 10 problems, right? That you should fix and another person misses half of them. Who is more valuable to you? Yes, your cost will go up because you have to maybe fix more issues, but those issues are not going to come up when you sell the house and um, uh, the other inspector by the other party is going to find them, right? So it's it, it applies to many areas. Um, I think to be able to do that is is extremely valuable. I, maybe it's underappreciated. Um, I think it it should be highly appreciated, honestly. Is it like playing a detective when you do the internationalization bit. assessment? Yeah, it's a little bit, especially if you don't if you you know, if you if you don't have a lot of information, initial call, you're not gonna get the full of everything. But I think you can still, you know, just ask a few very pointed questions maybe. Um um about you know maybe the user information user interface or the use cases or audience or um you know what underlying technology they're 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 expecting to use depending on where it's at in the in the development right um so a few questions can get to give you some opportunities to to potentially point out some stuff When we come back, you're going to learn how internationalization fits into the agile development model, whether the number of languages that we localize into affects the effort that goes into internationalization, and what are the difficult languages to internationalize for. Finally, we're going to have a few questions and sort of think about the future of internationalization with AI and ChatGPT. Stay with us, I'm Andre, and you're listening to The Localization Podcast. Support for this podcast comes from Localization Academy, your gateway to mastering localization. Whether you're a newcomer exploring the industry or a seasoned pro ready for a career change, continuous learning is the key. At Localization Academy, we create accessible courses that enable you to gain practical knowledge, hands-on experience, and support from industry professionals. Discover your ideal career in localization today. Find out more about our current and upcoming courses at localizationacademy.com. When new companies come to you and the internationalization expert has to sort of sell that service, and then you charge them something extra at the front. That actually leads me to the question that I shared with you. So is internationalization something that we do maybe in the beginning? Is it a one-time thing just to you know prepare everything for the future development? Or is it an ongoing process and you as an internationalization expert are still needed for the client? Yeah, so there's two questions here. So the upfront, I mean, you don't charge them anything extra upfront. You just that's just part of localization, right? It's not extra. That's the problem that we sometimes look at it as extra. It's part of it, just like project management and translation and QA. It's just part of a full localization package. Um, and I'm, you know, that literally you put the finger on the problem that it's looked at as extra. It shouldn't be looked as it's not. It, you can't do localization without internationalization. It's not extra. It's part of the. It's part of what you need to do. Um, and you don't have to sell it as something extra. You just say this is. You can't do one. You have to present to the customer that one doesn't go without the other because the problems you're going to run into if you don't skip. Just like saying I'm going to skip translation and then they complain that the UI is not in German. 
well, yeah, you didn't pay for translation. So you skip internationalization, then you complain that you have issues with address formats or it doesn't, you know, or users complain about date formats not being being ambiguous and stuff like that because you didn't do the work. It's it's the same thing, but nobody would think about skipping translation if you want to localize a product, right? Because it's like, duh. So I want it to be the same with internationalization, but it's, you know, it's harder for people to grasp. So, but you have to put it in those terms. If somebody really asks, you'd have to, you don't break it out. You don't break it out on an estimate. Internationalization is an optional light item. It's just part of the engineering process. It's just baked into the estimate. So, meaning the person who estimates has to put that, take that into account and make it part of that, you know, allocate enough time. We do it automatically in our company. Um, we do uh, internationalization assessment. And then, you should, of course, you have to decide how much is needed. And then also we do what we call a content review where we actually review at least part of the source content to make sure the quality is good so the translators are not going to have problems. That's part of internationalization as well. Um, so, yeah, um, it's it's not it's not optional. And then, um, you know, the ongoing costs, it's really the same. Yes, of course, there is... Um, if it's a one-time localization, you get the source content, you translate, you deliver, and you're done, then you know a lot of the, the work is going to be upfront. But if it's a project that's going to iterate, um, they're going to add features, and you know, so you're going to do you know uh, five, six releases in a year, of course, you have to allocate a small amount for internationalization. Um, in, into each iteration because there are always going to be some new issues where they're going to, um, you know, introduce some new internationalization issue, hopefully less over time as you educate them more, right? Uh, the product should be, should be, get better and better as time progresses, but there's still, developers are still going to introduce issues. So there's still a small amount of effort that you're going to have to put in over time. You don't want to skip that. Really? <laughs> Okay, let me elaborate on that question, <laughs> please. <laughs> but wouldn't those issues later on be mostly discovered by the QA team? Isn't internationalization really about, I don't know, like we said education or how to do the layout, how to, I don't know, separate the strings? So if the developers are following it, do you, do you really think that with each new feature and each new version, there could be new types? Of internationalization issues? Well, there could be. It depends what they're adding. But the thing is, you don't you don't want to wait for QA um, unless QA does internationalization assessment. You might have a QA lead or a tester who's trained in that. Then they can do the assessment. It doesn't have to be an localization engineer. It just has to be somebody who's knowledgeable. But what you don't want to do is skip any internationalization assessment, translate the product, throw it at 20 different testers for 20 different languages and everybody reports the same issue duplicates of each of all the you know 20 bugs about date formats and that's when it becomes and, and then so all the time spent for, by the QA testers on that and then somebody has to scrub all those bugs review them determine that they're duplicates and then communicate it back to the dev team um, that's a lot of extra effort right for potentially one issue times 20. I always say an issue might multiply times the number of languages and times the number of places it it's seen in the product. So if you have five places and 20 languages, you could have 100 bugs where it really was just one issue that you could have caught up front 
and have the developer implement correctly in all places and you avoid all that. So yeah, I don't think it's 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 kind of one of the cardinal rules, so to speak, that you want to identify it up front. It's much cheaper. So how does the... So for, for what you just said to me, it's a sort of like a new thing that you need internationalization assessment or input with every new, let's say, project. If you think about it from the project perspective. Um, how does it actually fit into the, let's say, the agile model and the, I would say, consistent request from the clients to deliver projects as soon as possible? Don't you think like it adds a lot of extra time? That's a good, it's a good question. Um, and I've worked on a few projects that were used a uh, agile methodology in fairly short cycles, and a couple different um, approaches that we used. Um, um, so a couple couple thoughts here. So one was that um, let's say they have a three week cycle, right? But not every three week cycle will necessarily result in a product that goes to an end user. Um, there may be some products where literally they do an actual build and release every three weeks, right? That's possible. Uh, you get you probably have certain apps at home. Um, um, I use, for example, I use Quicken for my financial tracking and I get quite often I get updates pretty frequently, but maybe once a month. Um, so that's a pretty, you know, pretty uh, quick release cycles. Um, and in other ones, you don't even notice it. With Chrome, you probably don't even notice when it updates in the background. Um, so that's pretty common. Um, but so if if the product is released every, for every cycle, then of course you have to do um, um, translation for every cycle, right? If the product is multilingual. And I think, but what happens is that the plan for a cycle doesn't start at the end of the previous cycle, you right? So you can work on, issues like you don't have an idea for a feature you you come up with a rough idea you work out all the requirements you do all the coding all the testing in, in three weeks it's not possible so your cycles are going to overlap there are people working on something that's going to be implemented three cycles down the road four cycles or even farther if it's a really big thing so what you want to do is um you want to so there's two things you want to involve an engineer on the localization side to to see if any internationalization um, assessment is needed, right? What kind of feature is it? What kind of potential pitfall? So spending a small amount of time to see if there's something, is there any meat on the bone, so to speak? Or is it just, you know, oh, we're just adding a new error message there. You know, that's a feature. Okay, probably doesn't need it a lot. So it really depends. So you want to have an LE involved, ideally. Um, that's where the integration into the development team by the LE is really helpful. Somebody, you know, for a large program, it's really worth it to have an LE that's just kind of is maybe in some of those meetings, maybe in the um, uh, in the meetings where the, the, the different issues are prioritized and knowing about new features. We, I've, I've worked on projects like that's really cool because you're really part of the team and you always see all the new stuff from what's coming. You get to think about it as you go and give that input. Um, and the other part is, of course, when you have to do translation, um, um, if you have to do those quick cycles, then it is pretty, it's crunch time, right? So you don't have a lot of time. The internationalization issues have to be identified before if there are any. But um, for products that don't get a public release every cycle, you might um, 
um, not do translation for every cycle, right? So you may have three-week cycles, but you say you're going to do only do translation once every two months or every three cycles. And that, that gives you, you know, people still have to freeze their content and the strings and, and all that. So you still have to give enough time, but you don't have to do this, you know, constant every three-week uh, localization cycle. So you could slow them down and say, we're only going to do every third cycle. We're going to do localization. Um, that's possible. So it really depends on the need of the product and how often you have public releases. Or sometimes you have releases to OEMs, right? If it's a company that localizes, gives it to the software to OEMs to integrate on platforms, for example, which with Intel happens a lot, um, utilities and stuff like that, um, then you give it to OEMs. It's pre-release, but they still want to see it localized because the, you know, the, 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 the um, Lenovo wants to see the Chinese version and or whatever other languages they're shipping. They want to have somebody look at it before they integrate onto the platform. So you still have to be ready before the release. So really all that depends on the product release cycles and needs for early localization or um, what kind of testing cycles you have. Um, but yes, you cannot, yeah, I, I think you can decouple internationalization from that. Is the effort that goes into internationalization proportionate to the number of languages that we localize the product into? Or is it more about the different, I don't know, let's say sets of languages? It's not, it's not about the number of languages and um, it could be about the number of countries, which is not the same thing, right? Because um, if you're, so if you're just adding, you know, you already do German, you just add French, um, but you're not, you're actually shipping worldwide with all the languages. You can just switch languages and you don't really have any features that are country specific. The adding French is very easy. They're both Latin uh, yeah, they use the same fonts. They use the same everything. So you, it's almost almost free, other than translation and enhancing the product select, the language selection in your in your product, or changing the installer to App French. Pretty simple, right? Um, so it's not about number of languages, but if you have, of course, languages that use um, you know different fonts, uh, different layout, um, then you might have some issues. So you could be adding. Russian and all of a sudden your screen has all kinds of truncation issues because the words are so long and the sentences are so long compared to maybe just, you know, if you do simplified Chinese where it's shorter. So languages can cause problems, but um, generally um, um, that doesn't, it's not exponential for sure, or it's not an additive as in, you know, um, um, one hour of internationalization. Now I have to do two hours of internationalization because I'm adding one language. It's not, it's not like that. Um, it's really the, um, the the complexity of the product and how many features you have that have potential localization issues, right? So, I mean, it's really simple. If your product is only displaying one error message and has no UI otherwise, pretty easy, right? You have to make sure it's not truncated and you have to make sure the font is appropriate for the message. Um, and it's not hard-coded. I think those are probably about the three things. Uh, maybe don't have any string concatenation. So maybe four is still, even though it's simple, simple error messages, right? Yeah, for one error message, you could, if it's a dialogue you create and you design, you have four potential internationalization issues just with one one error message. So so no, there's no free, free lunch, man. <laughs> <laughs> but, does, but does the number of, I don't know, should I say locales? Does it really not affect the effort? What if, for example, I don't know, like let's say I created my, I don't know, software or app. Most of the companies, I would say, 
start with the English market or English speaking market. And maybe then they say, okay, I want to conquer Europe. So they're going to start localizing into European languages. Would the, would the effort be different than from a company who decides to go pretty much everywhere in the world, including like, I don't know, Asian languages, right to left languages, and so on? Or would, would the effort be the same? Yeah, no. So that's, yeah, that's, we kind of made that distinction already because when you add languages with different scripts, of course, um, you're adding layers of complexity, right? So if it's all Latin based languages, using Latin characters, then I think it's mostly length that's your difference, right? Length of the text, string length. Um, but when you're adding, you know, simplified Chinese tie, then you need different fonts. Uh, it's going to affect your layout. Word wrapping is going to be an issue. Um, that there's they're more picky there. Uh, you gonna you don't have spaces, you don't have periods, you don't have space between words and tie. Um, Japanese is very picky. Chinese sometimes too about where to wrap words. So there's a whole layer of complexity that adds right to left or bidirectional languages. They're adding that's usually the, the biggest lift for people. So so adding languages can add to the internationalization, but it's not, uh, you can't just say, you know, effort is X for one language and effort is X times two uh, or two X um, for two languages and then three X for three. That really depends. A, it depends on what languages you're adding. Um, and also it really depends on what kind of features you have in your product, right? Um, with especially bidirectional, you're going to have, depending on your UI and depending what kind of content you're displaying, especially I, we see issues with when you have a mix of words and numbers and other characters, sometimes the rendering can be weird. Um, so issues can be created. And you also said locales, and locales to me are, are geographic locations, not languages. So locales are a little different um, because you may have country-specific things. We talked address format before or currency or... Uh, decimals, right? For example, Switzerland and Germany use different decimal convention for numbers formatting, even though they're both German-speaking countries. So language not equals locale. I think that's one of the most common misconceptions. Language does not equal, well, that the misconception is that language equals locale, but the, 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 the truth is language does not equal locale. How often do you see um, language selectors that, you know, language selectors that say, a specific locale. So it says German, Germany in the language selector. So what is that? Exclude the Swiss audience or the Luxembourg audience or the Austrian audience? Is it so something specific to Germany? Why doesn't it just say German? So that depends, right? Um, you have to be precise about those things. Um, or we had a case where we say, oh, um, this is a thing we had on with Intel where we had uh, English pages, we had the simplified Chinese pages, and it said PRC, PRC right, or mainland China, and um, you cannot access YouTube from China. So there are rules around language to say, okay, don't put YouTube links on the Chinese website. Um, and that's true for the audience that's in China, but if it's a, a Chinese speaker using the Chinese site on um you know, outside of China, they could you, you view the YouTube video. It just shows you language not equals location. There are different challenges with adding a language or adding a location. Right. So what, in your opinion, is the most difficult language to 
internationalization internationalize for well i mean i don't know all the languages and i haven't done with all of them there are more than we can count right but of of the i would say the that maybe top 40 top 50 in the world um i see the most issues with bidirectional um mostly because the um there's just no readiness for it unless the framework that people use is has an easy way to flip. Just basically set one parameter and it just flips everything, mirrors everything properly uh, with websites that usually pretty good. Plain HTML, right? It's one attribute and it, it pretty much takes care of it for you. Um, there's some frameworks that have that and then um other frameworks may not be as good as that i don't i'm not an expert on the specific frameworks but just what i've seen is i've seen um applications where they they would change the rendering but then they did a lot of custom stuff in the ui you know maybe not super standard and then it causes problems it doesn't flip everything properly and they have to then manually make some fixes around it so from a just from what i've seen and you know my exposure is you know fairly limited to working with with, with Intel, but um, that one's tough. Um, um, and then, you know, the other part is with, the, like I said, the word wrapping in Japanese and Thai. If you care about it in a software UI, it gets really tricky because you have to individually, um, you know, manipulate the text to wrap the way it's nicer to read for the reader. And um, you have to ask yourself, is that worth the effort? Was the reader going to be, you know, if it's a technical application, does it matter that much? You know, if it's like a little driver configuration utility uh, or hardware configuration utility for pieces for some hardware you have in your computer, do you really care that much if it's wrapping at the right character? The reader is still going to be able to read it. Um, so it may not be worth it. But if it's something really slick, like a marketing presentation where you do desktop publishing, you want to have somebody go there and you want it to be perfect, right? Um advertising marketing you want it to be perfect so um so that's definitely an area where it's, it's a lot of extra work um uh, to do that i wish we had more advanced frameworks for that text wrapping thing i know i'm keep coming back to this one thing but it's the one thing we haven't really solved um i know there's some solutions out there um i've seen one being at least tried out in my field but um you know maybe that's where ai could be helpful I know you may have a question about that later, so we can defer that to later. But um, uh, you know that shouldn't have to be a human having to to do that. The, the information is exists. How can we not automate that? But there's so many different ways we're displaying content. Um, how is it going to work in every you know for all the different software frameworks, uh, uh, content delivery formats? How is it going to work for everything? We certainly haven't solved that. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, since you touched on it, I was going to ask it anyway. Uh, what, what do you think is going to be the role of AI specifically for internationalization? Have you seen any experiments? Have you done any experiments yourself? You tried, I don't know, ChatGPT for something that you normally used to do manually? I've asked it one question, I think. I've tried it once. Um, I'm I've been a little busy, honestly, but you know, and it's one—it's one of those things. It's fascinating, and I'm asking myself how deep into it do I want to get, unless I need to use it professionally. Um, um, but I think there should be a lot of opportunities there in localization, honestly. 
Um, and I haven't, I haven't deeply immersed myself, I have to admit. Um, so it's not, I'm certainly in no way an expert on it. I just don't know enough. But just that example, I can probably think of some areas where it could really save time. Um, you know, why are we doing certain things manually? Um, but um, there are other areas where I think it's human judgment is still going to be important in localization. But improvement, so, I mean, uh, machine translation, um, improve, quality insurance, automated quality insurance, um, I think there's a lot of room there for much more intelligent solutions. Um, and I don't know what would be considered AI and what's just a, a you know, a good automated solution that doesn't involve AI. I don't have enough expertise there, but I'm sure there's lots there. Um, I know a lot of companies are looking at it. There's also a lot of, you know, a lot of buzzing out there with not much behind it yet. Um, where that's going to go, you know, that might be that might be for the next generation to solve. Um, of of localization experts, there's so many young people in the industry, and I think them growing up with those technologies. I really hope they're going to do some very, very cool stuff in that, in that area. Um, um, and um, yeah, I think there's a lot there. There's a lot there. People just have to get creative. We just still do too many things manually that are not, you know, there's, it, they're based on some kind of algorithms and some kind of logic they can be solved with technology. Well, now that got me thinking that <clears throat> one of the easiest thing that you could do is simply give your code to chat gpt and ask it if it's well internationalized uh, i i mean i can't put code that's under an nda into chat gpt of course so um i can't just take <laughs> you can, it over but <laughs> well you're not you, you can't because there are policies around it um but it's an interesting question right so you could take some public examples of some code um that's out publicly and, and do that with that'd be really interesting, and I think that'd be really good for a developer to do. I'm 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 actually quite um, I I I do listen to a lot of information and how you know you ask ChatGPT to come up with code. Um, I don't know how much knowledge it would have about internationalization. What it would come up with be really interesting. It should be done by the, a developer who that's where a developer with the internationalization knowledge would be fantastic to see what kind of stuff to come up with and really evaluate that. I think that'd be great, honestly. Um, could be a great help because we have we have code, code scanning tools, right? There are multiple. I know Microsoft has one. Um, uh, there's a Globalizer um, that we used for a while. And um, they're tedious and they're a lot. It's, it's a lot of effort to set up. It's a lot of false positives when you run reports. And then you have to have a human wade through that. It's not productive. And it's like, who wants to do that? It's kind of mind-numbing work, honestly, too, just to find a handful of issues, right? To have, oh, I have 2,000 results in this code scan. And now I have to find the three or four that are valid issues that actually need to be fixed. Um, I think, I don't know how much better those tools have gotten. I'm currently not exposed to the kind of latest generation of those, but you would think that there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, yeah, how cool would that be, right? To train an engine specifically on internationalization issues and and know how to eliminate false positives. Cool. Somebody's going to do it. I know somebody's going to do it. It's not going to be me. 
So maybe it's already done, but we just don't know about it. Might, it might be. I mean, or at least somebody's working on it. Yeah, no, fantastic stuff, honestly. Um, it's, it's probably one of the more frustrating efforts I've been involved in was uh, code scanning and uh, dealing with, oh, we have 25,000 <laughs> results, you know, from a relatively small piece of code. It's like, you can't throw it at a developer and say, hey, go figure out what to fix, right? So uh, manually filtering that is painful. Assuming that all the software would be already written perfectly and internationalized well, what would you be doing at that point? Where do you think that the biggest value a human could add? Especially like in your case, because you were talking that you're mostly focusing on software, right? Which a lot of it has to do with how developers do their job well and how familiar they are already with the principles internationalization and software development is one of the key areas that I think is being affected by AI. And let's look at it from the positive perspective that it helps them be more efficient rather than taking their jobs. So assuming that the AI could help them also with internationalization, what do you think in that scenario, where would be the biggest value that someone like you with your experience could still add value. I would probably just retire at the beach. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's a nice picture, right? Um, if, hey, none of that is needed anymore. It's just built in, right? Um, and I think we should push for that. There's no, um, but I I just don't, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm kind of interesting because I I tend to be a little bit of a pessimist at times um, in that regard because you have, um, yeah, you can take something and put it into let's say you could put in ChatGPT and it could tell you what all the internationalization issues are. But to make that globally available, it has to interface with every content management system, with any content format, right? and take into account maybe some other factors that I maybe can't think of right now, but those are just two other parameters, content format uh, and the tool that the content is in. Um, and it has to be able to handle that. So there are all these integrations that have to happen. Unless there's some kind of universal interface to everything, right? Um, like if you want to interface your translation management system with a content management system, there has to be either direct API integration or some kind of in-between connector of which both both exists. And there are hundreds of thousands of implementations like that in the world. So now you have to tie in that AI piece that does that work for you. Um, and it has to be done for the code, for the content itself, right? Um, so it's so many different pieces. So you, I don't think we'll ever get there. Um, but I think we'll get there on a large level where we have, you know, large, like, um, especially large products with companies that have a lot of money that can implement that kind of stuff. I think you'll see it, um, first. And I think it would just shift the way the role that the localization engineer is not, I don't know exactly where it would shift to, you know, but there's always the human factor. If you, the human factor doesn't go away until we're all humans are eradicated from the earth. <laughs> It's always going to be there. There's going to be human error, and there's going to be some things that are not just going to be automatically detected and corrected. So I'm a pessimist in that regard in a, in a good way because it I don't think the localization engineer is going to be obsolete. 
not in not in my lifetime at least well you're going to retire soon though <laughs> not that soon not that soon I'm, I, I still have excitement left besides ai what is it that you are curious about right now you know it's interesting um i'm not i've never been super interested i'm not an expert on machine translation for example and i know and, you know that's i guess we don't consider that ai maybe i, I don't know how close it gets to ai what MT engines do I'm not it's not my area of expertise but uh, I think we should be doing better with MT quality MT quality should be better by now um, I still see so many issues around translation quality um, that are not solved so I think it's you know it's a chase into AI and AI may help solve that um, but so that's one area um, uh, curious I'm, I'm to me, the most fun part of internationalization is the the people connection part, and um, that's why I one reason why I took this specific question, uh, new this, this specific new challenge, this new job, and I am not retiring. Um, so, um, if anybody who I'm going to be working with is hearing this, I'm not retiring. I'm taking on a new challenge because it's it's exactly what I love and what I am curious about is I get to be in the middle of it and I get to really it's all going to be about people interaction and um, making things better from a from an internationalization point of view, and that that does excite me. Um, where exactly it's going to go, I don't know yet. I haven't started yet. I don't know exactly what the challenges are going to be, but um, that is, it's always been what excited me. It was not sitting, you know, that's maybe why I don't like coding so much because I don't like just sitting in a cube and coding away. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit introverted, but not that introverted. I do like to communicate with people. Um, that uh, The people connections have always been a huge part of my, uh, my work that I loved and it keeps me going. Um, and so that is what gets me excited. What else besides, of, besides work, like outside of work? I don't have that much going on outside of work. Um, when you get old, like me, you take, you spend a lot more time, um, on self-care. Um, so self-care is a big thing. So between self-care and a little bit of family and, uh, work and, um, not enough sleep, you know, there's not, not a lot of time left. Um, so some things will have to wait till later. Um, also at our age, as some of us have elderly parents that are taking up some of our time, um, be it to travel, to see them or to, to have them close and maybe spend time with them. Um, but, um, one thing I noticed, and this is very personal too, is, uh, um, through some of it was that pandemic and some of it was my you know, deep immersion in my work over time and also raising children, um, which is very challenging. Um, I haven't um, kept my personal connection alive enough with friends and, 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 and people just kind of, they're, they're there somewhere, but I haven't really um, kept it going. And I really encourage people to spend time doing that. So I'm actually started doing that um, again. And that, really gets me excited. Uh, I had a, a spontaneous phone call with a friend who is stuck, kind of has some challenges and he doesn't really get out of the house much. And, and I had a call with him and that, you know, those are meaningful things. And uh, also COVID really, um, I think a lot of us got hunkered down at home. We have our work, we get the remote work, which is great. Um, I love it. I actually love the remote work, but we're neglecting some things. And I think we have to actively um, uh, 
bring some of those things back in our lives. It can get lonely if you if you don't get out, and uh, it's not fun. It's not fun to be lonely. And uh, um, so I started reconnecting with people, and uh, some people from the industry, and some people outside the industry, uh, some family, some old friends, and uh, it's it's I'm really enjoying it. And just get out more and be out in the city and um, talk to random people. Um, that's actually one thing that excites me too. And taking care of my health. Um, I'm neglected my health for some time and started having some back problems and I'm working on fixing that. And that's been really fun too and, and challenging. So I have a bunch of questions here based on what you just said. What is it that inspired you to start reaching out to people? Honestly, um, and they, you know, we're getting a little away from localization, which is totally fine with me. Um, I think it's important to not just be, you know, thinking about your work. Um, but I think there's two things. Um, I, the team that I've worked with at um, Suma Lingue, which I'm leaving today officially, or um, it's been an amazing team to work with. Uh, before that, it was Global Me, um, uh, where you were part of. Amazing people to work with, and. I just really appreciated all those connections and I don't want to lose those connections as I'm stepping away from that job. The people mean something to me. They're good friends of mine. Um, and also seeing another thing is um, we talk about elderly parents. I see my, my parents, um, my, um, um, my mom's mind has pretty much gone. She has a, a severe dementia and my dad is taking care of her and she was the social one and he was not. And with her, kind of fading away and socially he's left with not much connection and he had to v try very hard to step out of his comfort zone to create uh, at least some social connections because it can get really lonely and i don't want to do that so i want to i want to learn from my mom to nurture um, the human connections and stay in touch with friends. doesn't matter how far away they are. You can make these days. It's so beautiful. You know, you can have a, a call with somebody in the Philippines and talk for a couple hours. And it's just the most fantastic. I mean, how do you not walk away from that happy? Right. Unless you don't get along, I guess, but <laughs> then you probably wouldn't have a two hour call, but, uh, and, and doing that with my dad and, and asking him to get an Android phone so we can do video calls and, you know, little things like that. You just got to make these little efforts. And I think that's, um, uh, if you work in an industry that long, it's been almost 30 years for me, um, you, the long, longevity can be curtailed, right? If you don't take care of yourself. So I think uh, it's, a, it's really nice that you brought that up because I think you have to keep that balance. Um, it's nice to be excited about localization and internationalization, but you really have to get, get excited about other stuff in life too. And if you ever do step away, you want to have something to be excited about that you're stepping into as well, right? Um, I think most, if somebody, you know, at some point retires from the industry, I don't know if localization is going to be in their lives daily. Some people might still do it on this kind of as a hobby, but um, other people might, um, they, they want to move on to something new. You want something to be there. So I think I discussed this with some previous guests, whenever we talk about connections and, you know, like reconnecting with people that you used to know or used to be more in touch with. And now that you mentioned that actually you're leaving Suma and you want to keep in touch with the people. In my experience, this is what a lot of the people say. I think it's kind of like a like cliche, but it's like something people wish for when they leave. They're like everybody's telling you, like, you know, like you write your last email, like, thank you, it was nice working with you, and let's stay in touch. 
and everybody will be like, yeah, 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 we'll stay in touch. But in my experience, at least, um, is that they never do. So do you have some sort of a plan or, or are you being systematic about reaching out to people, whether it's from Suma or past friends, or do you really leave it just for some spontaneous moments? When yeah, yeah. I mean, you're not wrong. Um, you know, you're not wrong. It's, it's something we do say casually and then we end up not doing it, but that's exactly my point. It does take some conscious effort. Um, I don't know if I have a specific plan, but I know I want that to be part of what I spent my time on. And, um, I actually decided to work only 75%, 30 hours in my new job, um, 30 hours a week, because I want that balance. I want to have time for things other than work. And as I get older, that gets more difficult when I work full time. So I decided this would be a really good balance. Um, and, um, yeah, you have to, you have to do it consciously. I have this fantasy of actually traveling around the country and stopping in places where I do have friends and visiting them. Um, I don't know if that's a full-fledged plan, but it's certainly something I could see myself do. Um, and I think it'd be extremely enjoyable, you know, having coffee with Andre Cito and, uh, Vancouver, that sounds pretty darn good. <laughs> well, I don't drink coffee, but we'll damn, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tweet not, not that out. That... Did you know Andres Hito doesn't like coffee? Uh, I think I mentioned it many times. Yeah, don't drink coffee. Another thing that was interesting to me when you mentioned that you enjoy talking to random people. Again, do you have some sort of strategy? Because I sort of do have a strategy about that. How do you? <laughs> How do you initiate the contact and what is the first thing that you talk with them about? Because I think at least for me, this is a, this is a big thing. How do you, how do you get connected with someone you just met uh, so that the conversation is not very like on the surface for too long, you know, like, Hey, it's, what is the weather and so on? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I actually like that question because I, in my career, I went to a few conferences, not many. Um, I went to some, a Unico conference a couple of times, to a couple of sales conferences uh, in, when I was with another company. And I never liked it because it, I was kind of forced to talk to people, right? You have your booth that you're in potentially, or there's some kind of event. And I always felt like I wasn't particularly comfortable in that um, mode. So that doesn't necessarily work for me. I, I'm not a big fan of going to conferences. It's not. I'm not the right person for that. I can do it, but I. I want to say I, I don't feel at ease fully. Um, I. It's. It's pretty random. I. You would not believe. I'm a. I'm a big coffee drinker, and I. I like. We have a lot of coffee shops in Portland. And I like to try them all out. I mean, we have hundreds, right? And so I actually tend to. Uh, start conversations with baristas. If it's not very busy, they're not very busy. You know, it's a quiet time. I've had very long, very deep conversations with baristas. I sharing stuff that you wouldn't otherwise share with somebody you just met. Or you know, and sometimes it's a place you go frequently, and you, you, it's the same person. You get to know them. So I've had a lot of those. Um, but I've also occasionally just talked to somebody when I'm out for a walk in the neighborhood. I do a lot of walking. And sometimes you just, somebody says, Hey, I've seen you around walking and you know, how you doing? And then you start talking and you get kind of into a long thing. I love these conversations. And then you might see that person again and you get a little deeper, you know, over time. Um, I like the random ones. Um, you know, they don't necessarily turn into personal relationships, but I still think that those, 
those um, um, conversations are actually underappreciated. And uh, that's one something we lost during COVID, right? People didn't, maybe they did a little bit on the street, but you didn't go into coffee shops. You didn't really stand around in stores talking to people because everybody was just kind of focused on getting in and out and, you know, not getting sick, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, that's some examples where, where I do it. And, you know, of course, with people at work that even maybe somebody I haven't talked to a lot, but I had a chance to be in a call with them. Sometimes we like to add a little bit of personal time. Um, um, that's another opportunity. Or we even have a thing uh, some, some workplaces have where they match up people for a chat, like randomly with using a little bot or something um, to just match up people and say, hey, why don't you have a chat together? You've never, you know, you may have never talked to each other and just share that. That's kind of fun. It's a little hard sometimes because you're at work and you're busy and then to say, okay, now I'm going to add another meeting <laughs> to my calendar. So that hasn't worked for me personally, but it might work for other people. There's so many opportunities. As And then it's, you know, also when you have common interests, when you have hobbies and you meet people through a hobby, some people it's gaming maybe or uh, some, you know, physical activity they're playing in a sports team or something. There's so many opportunities. It doesn't have to be part of the, the work environment at all. What do those small conversations with people that you meet in the street give you? As you said that it's underappreciated. So what is it that you appreciate about those interactions? I think the more people you expose yourself to, you know, intellectually or, or sometimes emotionally and have these conversations, I think it just always stimulates something. I get ideas from talking to people. I see different struggles that people have. Um, I, I do have a post-localization, I have some ideas that I don't want to get into right now. It's not formed enough, but you know, there's something I want to do. There's things I want to do. I, I, um, I'm not doing localization until I'm 90, and, but I always want to keep my brain engaged. And it's, it's just, it's brain engagement, I think. Um, anytime you talk to somebody and um, the, the older you get, the more you, the quicker you lose that. Um, um, so, you know, for maybe if somebody's in their twenties, they automatically have, they tend to be more social and more out and about, and, and maybe it's automatic and you don't think about it, but I think you have to, you have to nurture that. I think it's engagement. It's keeping perspective. Um, you know, um, if you look at how stuck people are on some, some people on some viewpoints, it's because they're not engaging. They're not open to engaging with other people who may have different viewpoints. You know, I can talk to somebody who has a very different viewpoint and have a civilized conversation. I think um, I I would never want to lose that ability. Um, and we're we're a little bit in trouble there. I think as a society at times. What is something people seem to misunderstand about you? And I think this could also be connected to what we were just discussing. I'm not sure if you ever build a more, I don't know, let's say like a friendship with someone you met uh, as a stranger in the street. But this question is really about like, what is the first impression that you think you give to some people, to most of the people? And then over time they discover like, hey, it's actually something. Hmm. It's, it's a little hard to say. Um, I think I'm pretty intense. <laughs> I talk a lot. <laughs> and um, I think that people who know me a little better appreciate that. Um, whereas somebody who just met me, maybe a little bit, might be a little bit, you know, too intense at times. Um, I'm very opinionated. I can come across a little bit strong. I've rubbed people the wrong way occasionally, especially about work related topics. You know, if 
if if if something is not done the right way and or maybe it's been explained and it continues to not go that way i can i will push you know and and i and and it's because i care it's only because i care it's not because i'm a jerk it's because i care um i care about the outcome um and you know that's also something i have to check myself on um um and then uh, another part that's maybe uh, i find is underappreciated um that this i try not to make this sound arrogant but um i don't tend to raise issues until unless i'm pretty sure that i'm right so um i mean i can be wrong i'm wrong sometimes um but i try to make sure i'm fairly certain that i'm right and then i will push an issue and I don't appreciate it when people don't take it seriously because I don't raise an issue on that. And people who know me also know that, that if he brings it up, it's probably something we should at least take into consideration. And if it turns out to be a non-issue, then I, then I would, you know, I, I don't want people to not speak up because they're afraid of that. Like continue to, if you think something is an issue, um, you know, it's like the, if you see something, say something kind of, philosophy right in in many parts of society if you see something that's that you think is really problematic you should speak up if you, if it's safe to do so um and in a work environment i would say most of the time in in our work environment it's safe to do so it's it's all usually a technical or process issue it should be safe to do so but i still sometimes feel like my opinion is not appreciated enough um, um and especially in the vendor customer relationship um, that can happen where you bring something up and you know it's kind of a big deal and you just get either crickets or you get pushback. Um, that still bugs me. Um, and so that's where on one area I feel misunderstood. Probably sometimes they're underappreciated. What do you think is wrong with our industry? I don't think there's anything wrong with our industry. Um, it's, I think we're still, we're uh, a few things maybe. I think we're still spending too much time on small stuff. And not looking at the big stuff. And that's takes me back to internationalization because with proper internationalization, you can kind of do address big things. And you know, it it exactly how you write the sentence if you slightly change the style of a sentence, um, spend a lot of time on that when it really to the end user it doesn't make any difference to me. It's it's kind of wasteful. So I think we should not sweat the small stuff and we should look at the big stuff. Where are the big gains? And then, you know, we can still fine-tune, but Get the big gains first, and then if there's time and and you know budget is not an issue, you can you know then depending on the audience, you have to get a little more into the small things. I know in marketing language, you know, for example, you want to get more into the maybe little preferential things, but you know when when I see somebody spending a lot of time on a technical document, cleaning up minor things and arguing over minor linguistic things that really don't matter, that's a waste of time. So. Um, how can we, how can we focus more on big stuff and let some of the small stuff go? But it's, it's funny that you said it because previously you said that you can sometimes come off as a jerk, and the reason for that is that you care. So maybe those people care about those little technical details. Yes, and I, you know, I sometimes get lost in small details. I actually have done it many times because I'm a, I'm kind of a stickler for things, um, and so. Uh, so I do it um, as well, but I think it's still a matter overall. If you want to exist as a as a provider, I think you have to know where your focus is. You know, the cost 
the pressure on cost is so high in the if you're a provider to to you know your rates are always supposed to go down never up right then you become more efficient and um it, you, you if you want to exist you have to be able to find a way to do that um, and so sweating sweating the small stuff is, is not is not going to get you there um does that make sense there's another thing um when a company chooses a platform they get often locked into that platform for a long time because implementing it and then get training everybody and everything is interfacing with it you know you're really locked in and um and then you have maybe a new product that's a better product um and the switching cost is so high you tend to stay with the archaic product and I think that's, I mean, I've just seen some examples of that. I think what needs to happen is that the product you're currently using needs to evolve so it always stays current. And you see a lot more of that these days. You see a lot more products that just evolve very quickly and, you know, which is comes with its own challenges. But um, working with archaic uh, tools uh, is, a, is a thing I'm still seeing, seeing a lot Um and um, I think the thing we mentioned earlier too, that um, you know, false positives on quality checkers, um, it's a big challenge. Uh, and um, so I think some of the new technologies, uh, opportunities out there, including AI, I think is really, really, really going to make a difference there. And again, that deals with a lot of small stuff, right? Right. Uh, if you if 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 automation can find and correct small issues. And you don't have to spend hours and hours of a linguist or a QA person, um, you know, finding those. That's that's a win, right? So yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of room there. All right, getting to the second hour of our interview. So my final question to you is: I means not a question. If you could say the one thing to everyone in the industry, what would be your message? I don't know if I have this one really big message, but um, I think um, definitely focus on collaboration and connection, um, and also bring in. And um, I, th I say that specifically to people who've been in the industry a little longer. Be a mentor um, um, to. There's, you know, it's so much easier to get uh, new generation young people into the industry if if they encounter strong mentors when they when they join the company i've had the pleasure of um doing a lot of that and i still wish i could have done more there's only so much time in the day um i always enjoyed that part um and you know um it's a, it, you it's really fun when you see people come in and you get to do some mentoring and then you see them actually kind of they're kind of maybe the really good ones are going to leave you in the dust a little bit and it's okay you know it's a change of generations um that's what you want to see you, you want to see progress you don't as the more senior person you don't have to be on top of everything you don't have to know everything let other people get into that and really push that and drive that and and um you know and then when it's your time to step away you step away you don't have to step away knowing everything but i think when you can make a difference in that regard, with mentoring people and getting people excited about stuff and expanding their tool set and their knowledge, to me, that's exciting. So that is one message I have for the 
you know, don't hoard information and protect your space in the industry because you're getting older. Um, uh, share it with people and bring them along. And and it's not just other LEs, you know, I think there's so much influence you can have on project managers and QA, QA testers and QA leads by always sharing, always be generous with your what you're sharing. Um, just little things like, let's say there's a technical problem and the PM comes to you with a technical problem in a translation tool. You could just fix it and say, oh, I fixed it. Or you could share what the problem was and how you fixed it. Because people are going to read it. And these days, it's often not done in email. It's in a communication tool like Teams or, or Slack, right? And other people can see it. And so everybody who sees it learns from it. And then next time, they're going to know, oh, yeah, we had this issue before. And I, so that's a, a, so cool to be able to share it this way. It's not in this you know, limited audience. You have a much broader audience because you have these communities and channels and, and, and chats, right, where you, where you get to share that. Just share information. Um, it's it's the most it's the best part of the job to me. <laughs>